So we are in our third Midot here. We've done humility, we've done gratitude, and this past week that you have done patience, I hope, and your assignment was to study with a friend. Did anybody actually study with a friend? Very good. What did you get out of it? The reason I say that is, did people have a problem understanding what the relationship of some of these things was to patience? So what's the relationship between grief and patience? Why did they start with grief, do you suppose? Both grief and patience come about when something happens in your life that is unpleasant over which you have no control. The connection between the two is you don't choose what's just happened. So if you are grieving for the loss of a loved one or grieving for the loss of your puppy, or and I'm not, not minimizing that, that's a big deal. So if you're grieving because something you love has either departed or died that you didn't have any choice about, it's the same thing as you walk into a grocery store and you see the little old lady counting out her pennies to pay for a $100 grocery bill one penny at a time. That's not something you chose. But you are in it and you have to endure through it. And so it's very much the same circumstance. One obviously far more intense than the other. But the reason the rabbi started there is because they're fundamentally both the same thing. And the only difference between the patience that you have to endure behind a little old lady counting out the change and the loss of your puppy or a loved one is intensity. And as you said, duration. Uh, the one being more intense lasts longer, but it's the exact same phenomenon. There are things that happen to you in this life that you do not choose. And you would avoid if you could. But one of the things that happens is there are things in this life that cannot be avoided. They will happen. And so the mechanism, if you will, that you have within you is grief. And it's either grief really big when you lose somebody really important, or it's grief kind of small when you're just standing there tapping your foot because you can't move forward in the line. But it's the same emotional mechanism. Why is that? Why does God put us in circumstances where we have to endure grief, either great big grief or little tiny grief? Why does he put us in situations like that? Most of the things having to do with patience have to do with time. I'm in a hurry and I have this really slow, careful driver in front of me. The point is, patience has to do with time. Grief does not. So your problem is that you have something else you would really rather be doing and this situation is chewing up time that you would rather be spending somewhere else. With grief, the time dimension is much different because you're not grieving because you're late for something. 
you are grieving because you're missing something, but I'm suggesting to you that the emotional mechanism is the same. And as Galene was saying, that one of the ways she reacts to it is by recognizing that God's perspective is not in time. And that goes back to patience, where you also see that you are in a time stream, and what you've got is a bump in the time stream that is upsetting you, and recognizing that God is outside of time. So why does God put us through those things? This may seem random, but it's not really. Christianity is the most terrifying of all religions. And the reason that Christianity is the most terrifying of all religions, especially to non-believers, is because Christianity offers you no escape. So, if you are a pagan and life gets to be too much for you, you can always take a pill and just go off into easeful death. Just go to sleep and it's all over. Christianity takes that option away from you. Because what Christianity says is, you continue on after that. And that's one of the reasons that people are terrified of Christianity, because they are living their lives in the hope that the end is going to be annihilation. At the end of my life, I am just going to go poof, and I'm going to cease to be, and it's all over. And what Christianity says is, no, it isn't all over. It continues. Your personality flaws, if you don't ever work on them, you can stand for about 70 years, but if you had to stand them for eternity, that would be the definition of hell. In other words, as you go through your life, if you have not worked on your character and you've not worked with the idea of eternity in mind, and you've not done things like you all are doing here where you examine who you are and you examine who you are in the light of God, if you haven't done that and you just sort of let yourself go naturally, grow like a weed, you can stand that for 60 or 70 years. But if at the end of that, you don't disappear, the prospect of living with what you have built over those 60 or 70 years and having it carry on into eternity is unbearable. So as you step into the next phase of your life, when they plant the body in the ground, understand that what you have made here is going to carry forward. And if you're not happy with what you've made here, you really would rather not carry that into eternity, which is why pagans are so interested in annihilation, because they don't have the prospect of having to carry it into eternity because it ends when their life does. We don't have that luxury. So we have to approach this part of our lives from a very different perspective because what we put into the grave is going to be something that will then carry on in the world to come and what we have made of ourselves is going to continue. And to people who have not done a very good job of that, that's a terrifying prospect. What's the difference between patience and passivity? Patience is sort of by definition suffering. If you are being patient, you are suffering. If you're not suffering, then you're exercising equanimity or there's all sorts of other things that you're exercising. Patience is when you don't need it until just before you lose it. And definitions are important. So 
if you're going through life and you're able to talk yourself into, well, nothing I can do here, I'll just relax, then what you're dealing with is equanimity, not patience. And there's nothing wrong with equanimity. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's important to understand which one you're doing. Let's go back to the train for a minute. That was the last one, I think, in the set. And the comment of the rabbi was, if you miss your train, don't say, oh, shoot, I've missed my train. Say, I am early for the next one. My question of you is, how is that attitude different from passivity? So thing one is you're taking charge of your attitude. Everything is in the hands of heaven. Remember, when you're exercising patience, the first thing we read was both patience and grief are reactions to things that you can't control. So if you miss your train because you were just lollygagging around and putzing and putzing and so forth, and you just didn't leave the house in time because of your own laxness, that's different than if you're on the way to the train and you have to unload your neighbor's ox or something like that. In other words, something uncontrollable has happened that has caused you to miss it. First off, we're dealing with two different situations here. One is you've done everything that you prudently can do to make the train. And it is not the case that you've been late and decided that you, know, you have time for a bagel when you really don't, that kind of stuff. You've done what you can to make that train. That's thing one. So at that point, when you've missed the train, the attitude I would suggest should be that God has got something for me to do that requires me not to be on the train I wanted to be on. In other words, there's something I can do or somebody I can talk to in the station. There's somebody going to be on the next train. There's some reason why I have missed that train because I did everything that I know how to do to make sure that I was on time. I've done my due diligence. So the fact that I'm not on that train now is something that I have to trust in God for. And in that sense then, patience turns into an attitude. So at this point you can now say, okay, God, you've got something else for me to do here. What is it? And then you can be alert to what the opportunity is that has been placed in front of you as opposed to wasting grief, stomping up and down the platform and swearing and cursing and making a fool of yourself and not getting anything done. So the attitude being cultivated here is not, come see, come saw, it doesn't matter what train you get, you know, we'll eventually get there. That's not the attitude. The attitude is, I did what I could do God has arranged it so I'm not going on that train. Therefore, what else has he got for me to do with that time and that space? And that's the whole purpose of that last one, is to recognize that you are in the hands of God. And if your plans don't work out, look around and see what the alternative plan is, as opposed to getting upset. All right, let's move on. What we're going to do next week is kavod, honor, and for those of you who know a little bit of Hebrew, kavod means weight, heaviness. So honor is a heavy thing. One of the things that we do is we judge other people. The first way we judge other people is what I would call the natural way. And that's what goes through your mind whenever you see someone. And 
we have such a hunger for honor ourselves. Everybody likes to be honored. What we tend to do is push everybody else down, so relatively speaking, I'm higher. In other words, well, Tino is so-and-so, and I'm not, and Mike is such-and-such, and I'm not, and what I'm doing is I'm pushing you down so that I can see myself higher than you are. The natural way we judge people, the root of that, has to do with we ourselves desire to be honored, and the cheap way to have that happen is push everybody else down. And then, look at me, I'm all by myself up here, in my own mind. Now, everybody else is doing the same thing to me, so, you know, I mean, it's sort of like whack-a-mole. But that's sort of the first thing, is the natural way we judge people. And notice when I'm talking about honor, we're drifting into justice. And that's an important thing. So you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So the idea here is to have your judgment of each other be righteous. And then you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So if I am looking at Tino and saying, well, you know, this stuff is wrong with Tino, it's not wrong with me, so I'm higher than Tino, I'm not loving Tino as myself because I'm not using my standards to judge Tino. I'm very careful not to judge other people on the basis of things that I have wrong. I only judge people on the basis of things that I'm doing pretty good at, or I think I'm doing pretty good at. So if I think I'm doing pretty good at X, Y, or Z, I can look around me and say, well, none of you are doing that well about X, Y, or Z, therefore I am standing higher than you are. So here's a spectrum. On one end, you've got judgment, and on the other end, you've got fawning. So those are the two ends of the spectrum. One is you judge everybody harshly, and the other, you kiss up to everyone. And you want to be somewhere in between. So let's go to judging. We've talked about the natural way. Everybody here has what I call a justifier. No matter what I do, I have really good godly reasons why I do it, no matter how scummy it is. I can justify just about anything that I do. I'm really good at that. So one of the techniques that you can use with other people is to use your justifier on their behalf. If I were doing the thing that I see that person doing, how would I justify that? How would I talk myself into the idea that that's okay? And the classic example, told it a dozen times, if this were an orthodox group, which we're not, and you saw your rabbi coming out of a McDonald's where they sell bacon double cheeseburgers. Now, there is nothing in a McDonald's that an Orthodox rabbi can eat. It just isn't. So you see the rabbi coming out of the McDonald's, your natural inclination is, well, what have you been doing, Mr. Holier Than Thou? No, 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 no. He clearly went in there to use the bathroom. When he bought a cup of coffee in order to sort of not just treat them like a public restroom. So the first thing is when you judge other people, and we all do that, use your own justifier in your judgment. So look at them and say, all right, now if I were in that circumstance, what righteous reason do I have for doing that?
and then assume that the other person has the same righteous reason for doing it. Now, the other thing to understand is we all use heuristics. Heuristic is just a fancy word in these rules of thumb. You cannot analyze every situation from first principles, so you've got a bunch of filters. So, if you're walking down the street at night and you see a bunch of guys with tattoos all over their face and they look like they got hit with a needle storm because they got all sorts of stuff, you are not required to say, oh, they must be coming from Bible study. You understand what I'm saying? We all use heuristics. And you have to be able to very quickly sort people, but understand part of that is safety because you really don't want to be walking down the street and run into a group like that because very possible that your safety would be jeopardized. So the idea is God built this into you because if you had to look at every yellow object and decide is that a lemon or a lion and then draw a picture, well, it's round, well, it's got teeth. I mean, if you had to go through all that, you'd get eaten by every passing lion or at least by the first one. So the idea is you do have heuristics that you use and were designed that way because you've got to be able to make rapid judgments. But the point here is you've got to be ready to change those natural judgments that you make as you learn differently. So if you discover that the guys with the tattoos all over their face and all the piercings on their head and all that kind of stuff did in fact come from a Bible study, then you've got to be ready to adjust your ideas. So the idea here is to learn to get beyond the packaging. We all come packaged in various ways. Another way to say that is if I were to bring you in a package that had gone through the US Postal Service and was to put it on your desk and you only looked at the package and said, gee, that's really disappointing looking. I mean, it's all tattered and scuffed up and torn and all that kind of stuff. And if that's what you look at and never open it, you never discover that somebody has sent you a piece of gold. And if you did open the package and find the piece of gold, you would cease to worry about what the packaging looked like. And that's the point here of honor. Everybody was created in the image of God. All of us. Now, some of us don't do much with that image that we have been given, but everybody starts off as the image of God. So you need to start looking at people as if they are a bearer of the image of God. Now, some of them may disappoint you. Some of them may surprise you pleasantly. When my aunt died, well, I wasn't there when she died. I don't remember where we were, but several hours later before I found out, went to where she had died and she had already been moved. And this was on a Sunday afternoon and the mortuary was closed. So Kay and I, we wanted to say a fast prayer over her immediately to sort of settle the spirit. This is on a weekend in a mortuary with nobody there except this one young woman. And this young woman had a shaved head, tattoos all over the place, piercings all over the place, and sort of looked like somebody you would expect to inhabit a mortuary on the weekends. She turned out to be charming and caring and just completely very helpful. Absolutely incongruous with her appearance because had I walked through there on a weekend and saw her 
I would have thought that, boy, all she needs is a hump on her shoulder and she'd be stealing brains because that's what she looked like. But that was not what she was. As I say, she treated us kindly, gently, respectfully, let us go in to the cooler where they had Pat and let us pray over her. Just was a very nice person. So we all have our heuristics. As we look at people, we sort them into boxes, little places in the egg carton. Be ready to move them out of the one slot that you put them in initially and put them in another one as you learn. Now, the exercise this week is a visualization exercise. And one of the things you should notice is we are doing different things for each one. And you can do these different techniques for any of them. But what we're doing is we're using a different technique each week to introduce you to the techniques. This one's visualization. What you want to do is picture somebody that you don't like. And then imagine this person that I don't like has been tossed and buffeted by life to make that person what he is now, that person I don't like. But at some point in that person's life, he was innocent, and he was the image of God at some time. may have been very early. You don't know what his life story is. And what you want to do is you visualize this person. Just close your eyes and, and bring up his face or her face, and then back it back in time. You've seen these things on the Internet where they take somebody and move them forward and backward in time. Do that in your mind for this person and back them up in time till you can get to an image of that person that is innocent in your eyes. And what that does is it leaves a track on your soul. It makes tracks on your soul when you do those things. And what will happen is over a period of time, your attitude toward that person will change. You may still not be best friends, but you will start to look at that person differently. And as you look at that person differently, your relationship may change. Because relationship is both ways. So if you look at that person and you can't stand him, you communicate that subtly, even if you're trying not to. And so as you change your vision or your image of that person, your attitude toward that person will change. So the exercise is visualization. So you just close your eyes and pick somebody you don't like and then back them up until you get to an image of that person that you do like. It can be anybody you want. One of the values of this exercise, however, is that it may help you heal a relationship. Yeah, it may help you heal. Notice how I said that. I didn't, it said it may help you. But if you don't have anybody right now around you that you can't stand, pick somebody that you couldn't stand, and that will still leave a trace on your soul.